Well, last week I started off our time together with a quote, and I want to do the same thing this week. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's a theologian, uh, he wrote in his book on the Psalms, he said this, Church isn't supposed to be the happiest place on earth. It's supposed to be the most honest place on earth. I like that. You know, it's one of those quotes that you start with, you can identify with, you can think, you know what, I'd like that on Facebook. I'd, I'd tweet that on Twitter. But it's also one of those that I think the more you sort of drill down and let that sort of rattle through your mind, it, you, you realize how it applies uh, in several different ways. I would suggest perhaps it's only semantics, but, but the people are the church, not a building. So perhaps it would be better to say, you know what, the gathering of the, cha- the church is supposed to be the most honest place on earth. Well, we're walking through a series on the Psalms in the Bible, and over a course of about six weeks, we're taking something of a snapshot of the book, and we're looking at the different types and categories of Psalms that were written uh, back then that have been, you know, the, the, the worship book for the Jews originally, and now us as the church for, for thousands of years, and we're looking at, at what they meant then as well as what they mean for us today. And there's six different types of psalms that we're considering in this series, and they are a wisdom psalms, and psalms of hymns, or psalms of praise, uh, lament, which we're going to look at today, uh, the thanksgiving psalms, Steve Sellers will be in to look at this coming weekend, uh, then the, the royal psalms, or, or messianic psalms that pointed towards Jesus, and, and finally, the justice psalms. We want to, again, specifically learn how to pray from the Psalms because they teach us so much about open and honest communication with God. And so when we started a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the wisdom Psalms and we saw how they teach us how to pray and encourage us to to meditate on God's word in the Bible. We were challenged to get into the word and be people who read it regularly. We also spent a little bit of time defining it and differentiating between what many people think when they hear meditate, which is a kind of an an emptying of self in the mind, and, and what the Bible means when it says to meditate, like to meditate on God's word. See, biblical meditation, it's, if you take a literal translation from the, the original language into English, it's, it's more of a, a muttering or a, a murmuring. It's mulling over a word or a phrase or a theme to try and see it from all angles and get as much understanding of it as we can. It's, it's like a, a jeweler inspecting every individual facet of an expertly cut gem. We said we had a helpful quote with that. We said that, that biblical meditation is a, di- a diligent search. Whereas religious cults teach people to empty their minds as a means of meditation, the Bible teaches us to fill our minds with God's work. Meditation has a, a quiet heart and a directed mind. Mulling over a word in our, in our hearts and in our heads, we, we have come at it with a pursuit that springs from the inquisitive child's heart, and that's meditation. One of the things that having kids has taught me uh, is to, to try and regain that inquisitive heart. Uh, a couple of years ago when I was, you know, when we were still living in Calgary, we had a, a, a walk of about three doors to get down to our mailbox. And so once my, my son was walking, you know, he was one and a half, two years old, we'd, we'd walk those three doors to go check the mail. And it was a, a job that would have taken me all by myself, maybe, maybe 30 seconds there and back, 45 on a slow day. But with my son, it, it took minutes because everything was interesting. Daddy, look at this pine cone. Daddy, look at this leaf. Daddy, look at this grass. Daddy, look at this. Look at this. He just was trying to absorb and learn everything he could about the world around him. And that's, I mean, we can pray for that for ourselves. That that, that would be our hearts. That we would just get regain that inquisitive heart to learn everything we can about the Bible, which points us to learning everything we can about who God is and what he's done. 
Last week, we looked at the hymns or the psalms of praise, and we we looked at how this collection of about 25 to 35 psalms, so about a fifth of the book of the psalms, uh, focuses on declaring who God is and what he's done, and also praising him for his unchanging character. We looked at how these psalms are structured, because it's important that when we come to literature like this, we, we remember the genre. And so as we read poetry, which the psalms are, we read it differently than a biography like the Gospels or, or a prophecy like Isaiah or, or whatever else. And so we, we wanted to take a look at the structure of these things. And we saw that, that the, the hymns, they all opened up basically with some sort of a call to praise. You know, saying, praise the Lord, or, or praise Him. Or in Psalm 115, not to us, but to you be the glory, Lord. And then the most critical part of that is they moved on from just saying, praise the Lord, to giving us a list of reasons why we should praise God. And that's so important for us, because it's not just praise God because I told you so, but praise God because He is good, because He is faithful, because He is righteous, because He is just, because He has done all these things in our history. And so the importance of these hymns is that we have those reasons fresh in our minds, so that when we come to hard times, because hard times come, we know the reasons why we praise God. Tim Keller helpfully reminds us that the Psalms help us to see God, God not as we wish or hope him to be, but actually as he actually reveals himself. And I love that because because we don't serve a God, we don't follow God who started the world spinning and left us alone playing some sort of cosmic hide and seek with us, but rather here's a God who says, here's who I am, here's what I've done for you, now follow me in light of that. Keller continues, he says, The descriptions of God in the Psalter are rich beyond human invention. He's more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender, and more loving than we would ever imagine him to be. And so the Psalms fire our imaginations into new realms and yet guide them towards the God who actually exists. And this brings a reality to our prayer lives that nothing else can. See, these psalms, they help us to increase our view of God, to help us put him in his rightful places as high above and and us to rightly order ourselves around who God is and what he's done and submit to him in light of that. These things are the, the height of our relationship with God. Well, this week we move from the height of the relationship down to the depths as we consider the psalms of lament. The lament psalms are the polar opposite of the hymn on the emotional spectrum. A couple of helpful definitions of this type of psalm that I found as I was studying this week. Uh, a, a lament is a passionate expression of grief. It's, it's to tell the Lord about a difficult situation, to ask for help, and then to praise him for helping, kind of anticipating he'll help, even if he hasn't started that help yet. Finally, uh, a lament is the psalmist's cry when in great distress, he has nowhere else to turn but God. Now, more than a third of all the Psalms fall into this category, something like 60 or 62 of them are in this category, which is incredibly encouraging to me. Because again, we don't come to our Bible and say everything must be good, because look at all this text is good. Whereas a third of the worship book of the church here are these laments saying, God, life's not all good. They help us out today by giving us language for coming to God. These psalms are are songs that have honesty with them. They wrestle through doubt and grief and pain. We can often tell a lament by its mood. Psalm 22 is maybe one of the more famous lament psalms as Jesus quoted it from the cross. Here's the mood of these things. The psalmist writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I am not silent. Have you ever, uh, as we hear those words, have you ever wished you could say something like that to God? Where are you in all of this? If I had to guess, I would suggest that you have. I know that I have. There are several times where I can look back in my life where I cried out something very similar to this. And so the beauty of this type of psalm, the beauty of this type of uh, lament psalm, is that it gives us a permission, if you will, to bring everything we have to God and just lay it out for him. Not just the good stuff, but we can also bring the doubt, the grief, the pain, everything. Typically, when we read the laments, we find three different types of complaints. So we're going to do a little bit of kind of technical work on what these are, but we will bring it in and see uh, how they uh, relate to us as well today. So three different types of complaints. First, uh, the psalmist or the writer might be troubled by his own thoughts or actions. Uh, Look at Psalm 42 and 43, three times the, the writer says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? So listen, something inside of me is broken and I don't know what it is. The second type, the writer may complain about the actions of others against him, often characterize them as the enemies. Again, Psalm 42, verse 3, men say to me all day long, where is your God? These people are doing something to me and I don't know what to do about it. And finally, one that maybe is most relatable The writer might be frustrated with God himself, or maybe even frightened by a sense of abandonment by God. We read about that already, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But another example from Psalm 43, I I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Like the other types of Psalms we've looked at, there's a structure, there's an order to the the literature here that, that unites the laments, and there are several elements that are associated with a lament psalm, even if they don't show up in this order. Uh, these elements include uh, an invocation or a plea to God for help, uh, complaints, the, the, the why we're saying this, uh, a confession of sin or a claim of innocence, a curse of the enemies or imprecation, which is really interesting and we'll get to a little bit later, but also again in a couple of weeks, a uh, confidence in God's response and closing often with a hymn or a blessing. Now, every one of these won't show up in every lament psalm, but several of them always will. And just as a bit of a side note, it's interesting to me how this this formula of these lament psalms often lines up closely with uh, what psychology has suggested is the the stages of grief. Now, the five stages of grief are are this. First, you begin with denial. This can't be happening to me. Uh, Second, anger. Why is this happening? Who can I blame for this? Third, bargaining, you know, make this not happen, and in return, I'll do this. Fourth, depression, you know what, I'm just too sad to do anything about any of this. And finally, fifth, acceptance, I'm at peace with what has happened. Now, they're not identical, obviously, but they, they do seem strikingly similar to me. And just like when we're grieving, we don't process grief in a straight line. We may circle back through steps or we may get stuck in some stages for longer than others. Myself, I'm probably uh, lean into the denial part a bit and then get stuck in anger for a while. Why is this happening? Who to blame? I may skip bargaining and just land in a place of depression. You know what? I can't do anything about this. This is a hopeless situation for longer and then hopefully get to acceptance. And so, just like that, uh, the psalmist, as they write these lament psalms, they may do the same thing. They may kind of hurry into the complaint, 
and then get stuck there for quite a while and just lay it all out. They may hurry and, and, and sort of uh, just brush through a, a confession and then wind up uh, asking God to do something about the enemies for a long time. And so uh, we don't see this as a, a linear thing, but, but we work through these stages. So let's look at a couple of examples of these stages through the Lament Psalms a bit so that we can learn to come to God honestly, even when it's ugly. So we start with the invocation or the plea to God for help. This is, again, an admission that there's nowhere left to turn but God. A couple of examples. Psalm 12, verse 1. Help me, Lord, for the God they are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. And Psalm 17, verse 1. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Next, we come to the complaint. And this, this section is the focal point of these psalms because it's, it's where we find out what the motivations are behind the psalm. Again, going back to uh, Psalm 22, that, that one that Jesus quoted, we read this in verses 6 and 7. But I'm a worm and not a man. And here are the complaints. I'm scorned by men. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults and they shake their heads. And now, even though the laments are usually downcast, there's, there's often a statement still of trust in God. Look at this from Psalm 54. The, the, the author has been writing and, and, and complaining, issued the complaint part, but he says in verse 4, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Perhaps the hardest part for us to deal with in these psalms is the curse on the enemies, which crop up in, in a number of them. Uh, uh, quite an example is Psalm 109, verse 6 and 7, where the writer says, uh, May his days be few, my enemies' days be few, and, and may another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Yikes. Now, what do we do with that? Because these are our holy scriptures. We're told we, you know, we want to, to base our lives around these things. So how do we reconcile that verse, that passage, being a part of this book when we know God is love and God is faithful and we're not to go do those things? Well, I think one commentator, Tremper Longman, is helpful when he says this. The Psalms mirror every human emotion and help us to articulate them in prayer to God. Right? These, these mirror every emotion and help us to articulate them in prayer. He goes on and he says, God invites our honest prayers. When you're deeply harmed or anger boils, it would be both fruitless because God reads our hearts and dangerous to suppress those emotions rather than turning them over to God. And that's the important point. These pieces, these imprecations, they're not just expressions of anger, but they are allowing us to turn our anger over to God and let him act as he sees fit. It's an act of submission. He says these prayers don't ask God for the resources or opportunity for us to take vengeance on our enemies, but rather they ask God to do so and acknowledge his freedom to act or not act as he sees fit. And so this similar way, then, this is how we can, uh, it conforms to the advice Paul gave to his readers in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath or God's judgment or, or him to deal with it. For as it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I think that's helpful to help us understand this piece. 
The laments also have a place where the, the writer will either confess his sin or, or protest his innocence. Psalm 69, uh, you know my folly, O God, my guilt is not hidden from you. Or Psalm 51, for I'm conscious of my rebellion, my sin is always before me. Uh, the flip side, the innocence piece in, in Psalm 26, I abhor the assembly of the evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Confession is a, is a huge key piece here. God wants us to bring honesty and openness to him, even when it's ugly and things are a mess. And just like the emotion piece from the, from the, the curse section or the imprecation section, there's no sense in us hiding these things from God. He knows them. He knows our heart. And so we need to bring the mess to him. And now for us, from our New Testament perspective, and in light of the work of Jesus on the cross, we can cling to a New Testament truth like 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we could spend an entire week on that one verse, but let, let's just suggest that it is in the character of God that, that he is faithful and he is just, so that if we confess... He is uh, compelled, isn't maybe quite the right word, but, but he w- is faithful. He will uh, act justly and he will forgive us our sins. This is not just a, a hope. I, I say some words and God says, well, you know what, Sean, that was pretty good. Next time use some more flowery language, maybe actually, you know, get on your knees and grovel a little bit and maybe I'll forgive you. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. Confession is a a huge piece of our relationship to God. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church in in Wittenberg, which started the the Protestant Reformation, the split from Protestants and, and Catholicism, the very first one of those 95 Theses was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He's suggesting to to make progress in our spiritual lives, we have to confess regularly all of our lives. We have to confess and repent or turn from our, our unbelief, our rebellion, our sin, and turn towards God. The other side here, a quick note on, on the writers in the Psalms claiming innocence. Again, with our, our New Testament experience, so we may know, especially from Romans chapter 3, there's a, you know, a verse like Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that no one is completely innocent. And so it's important for us to distinguish here that the writer isn't claiming sinlessness, just innocence. Now, there are occasions where people are persecuted or harassed in situations which they are innocent. And so we can also bring this type of thing before God as well and say, God, you know what? There's something going on here that that this is someone's acting against me and I feel like I'm innocent here. Of course, we would suggest God show me where I'm not. But we can as well claim innocence. Finally, as we get towards the conclusion of the lament song, we come again to a hymn or a blessing. Uh, An example of verse uh, chapter 26, Psalm 26, my feet stand on level ground in the great assembly, I will praise the Lord. And this is the really remarkable part of these Psalms. There's gut-wrenching honesty, complaints, feeling of abandonment towards God, but often by the end, the writer concludes with a blessing, something like praise the Lord or, or similar to that. And so we've got to ask, because sometimes that seems to come really quick or really fast. They've all of a sudden dealt with this. So we've got to ask, how do they do that? How do the psalmist get to that point? And how do we? 
I would contend, I would suggest that that we can't take these lament psalms on their own, but again, see them as their place within the whole, the whole of Scripture, but also the whole of the book of Psalms. And I would suggest that it's because of the encouragement of the wisdom psalms, the, the reminder of the hymn psalms that we've looked at the last couple of weeks that, that tell us who God is and what he's done, and, and the praise that the writers given those that, that given the church then and given us today, that it's in that rootedness in those things that we can then return to praise. Remember, in Psalm 1, we're told to delight in the instruction or the teaching of the Lord, to, 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 to eat it up, to, to drink it up to meditate on it day and night, to think about it all the time. And then we get that, that blessing. We'll be like that tree that's been not just planted next to a water source, but, but transplanted next to not just a water source, but an irrigation canal that just doesn't happen to have water in it, but has living water flowing through it. And when we are transplanted by one who loves us, God, next to the irrigation canal so that we can be filled with living water through Jesus, we will bear fruit and we will not wither when the drought comes. We can cling to that. So, how can we learn from the lament psalms? Let's quickly look at an example. Uh, Psalm 88, your Bible, as mine does, may have it titled, A Cry of Desperation. And this is an interesting one. It's, it's perhaps the darkest, perhaps the most lamenty of the laments. And so listen to some of the words of despair found here. The author opens up in verse 1 to 3. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayers come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, to the underworld, to, to hell. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. I'm just getting beaten down here. Verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And then we just said that these laments usually end with a note of hope, but look at the last words of this one. Darkness is my closest friend. This is, this is someone carrying a burden, a heavy weight. But there are a few things that we can learn even from this darkest, most saddest psalm. First, we learn here that, that we can cry out to God. In all of this, the psalmist persistently directs his emotions and sorrow towards God in heaven. He acknowledges that God is the one who saves and the one who, who reigns over all things. And, and this anguish is the, the cry of a believer who understands he needs God's help and deliverance. And so we can learn that we too, in the depths of our suffering, we can use these words. We can kind of claim the psalmist words for our own to give voice to our own pain, our own pain. We can bring our uninhibited emotions before God, our unfiltered emotions before God, and we can pour out our hearts. And in our distress, he will meet us and will hear our cries. Second, we can share our deepest pain with him. Remember, uh, these psalms weren't just something, you know, David was being chased, he went up on the mountain, he wrote something, and somehow it's been prepared for us, preserved for us. But rather, these were part of the worship gathering. When the church gathered, they, they would work through these things. And so we too can bring our raw honesty to God. And that's really hard for us, especially when we gather, it seems, because it seems like we want to gather, we want to, you know, put on the right clothes and put on the happy face, and how are you? I'm fine, and how are you? I'm fine too, and nothing's good, and everything's all smiles and roses. But I think we need to, to heed the call of Peter in 1 Peter 5, where he says, humble yourselves, 
Bring your stuff. Humble yourself, therefore, under the almighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him. And why do we cast all of them, not just the, not just the little ones, not just the, the anxieties you think God might have time for and we'll deal with the big stuff. We cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. At the same time, Psalm 88 reminds us who we are praying to, our maker, our king. And in this humility, the psalmist honest sorrow differs from the, the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. If you remember the story of the Exodus, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and had them walking in the desert. And then because of their rebellion and disobedience, they, they walked around in the desert for 40 years. And after a while, they just got grumpy. And they say, you know what? Maybe Egypt wasn't so bad. Maybe slavery wasn't so bad. At least we had food there. And they, they grumbled against God and wanted to go back. But here... This psalmist reminds us that, again, God's the one that saves, verse 1 of 88. His deeds are right, they're righteous. And so he shows us that, that even in our deepest heartache, we can, we can express those feelings in a way that honors God, rather than just grumbling against him. Third, we can grieve the darkness. I love how one writer says, Psalm 88 is brutally honest about our life in a fallen world. While many of us come out of depressive fogs and, and spiritually dark seasons, those are some who there are others who per, perpetually struggle. Some preach a false theology that says, you know what, if you just pray hard enough and believe hard enough and do all the right things, then, then God will make your life everything you ever wanted it to be. But real life shows us something different, doesn't it? And so does this psalm. Right? The sun doesn't always come out tomorrow. We don't always get the job we wanted. Marriages end in divorce. Relationships die. People get sick and die. This is the far-reaching effect of sin on the world. And Psalm 88 reflects that pain and gives us permission to grieve all that isn't right. Because it doesn't take long to look around and see in the world that all is not right. Finally, fourth, we can learn that we can trust our Savior We've said that, that all Scripture points to Jesus. All Scripture points to Christ. And in the New Testament, Paul writes just all Scripture is, is God-breathed and useful for, for teaching and instruction. And this is no exception. What the psalmist was looking for in this lament was answered in Jesus, the one who came to rescue and restore what is broken. He came to, to fulfill the deepest cries of our heart. He came to, to, to show us that one day uh, there would be no more pain, no more tears. As, as one writer says, everything sad will come untrue. And we, we look forward still for that day. Psalm 88 also reminds us that we need an intercessor. We need someone to stand in the gap for us. Because believe it or not, we don't always know what's best for us. Many times we don't even know how to pray for things. I would guess in a room this size, we'd look around and we would see uh, several situations where you know you should pray for something, but you just don't have the words. And the beautiful thing is that, that Jesus can step in on our behalf and, and reshape our, our not being sure how to pray for God's glory. We also read in Romans chapter 8 that, that the Spirit also prays with us. And when we can't find the words to voice, what our, what our hearts really want to say, the Holy Spirit can interpret our groanings and bring our prayers to God. What marvelous love, grace, and comfort. Even when the junk in this world, the pain in this world mutes us and we don't have the words for it, the Spirit speaks for us. Remember, 
The church isn't supposed to be the happiest place on earth. It's supposed to be the most honest place on earth. See, God wants our sad hearts as well as our happy hearts. Let me wrap up with a quote from uh, Esther Fleece, who wrote a book called No More Faking Fine, which is a fantastic title. She says this, For years my faith walk was stunted by the assumption that God wanted my strengths, gifts, and talents to use for his kingdom. And while he does want those things, he also wants my heart. I left out that God wanted my laments. He wanted my whole heart, even the parts of me that are still broken or in pain. Praise Jesus, hallelujah for that. She says, when I incorporated the language of lament into my prayer times, I found that God would meet me in the midst of my disappointments instead of me wishing them away. If there's one thing we can learn from the laments, it's that it's okay to not be okay. Right now, if you are feeling far from God because of things going on in your life, circumstances or, or doubts or pains or sin, or, or just walking your own way and, and maybe looking for God but not finding him, prayer can be a hard thing. Let me suggest Start in the Psalms. Just start reading through them. The challenge that we've issued through this series is to to read five a day and you'll walk through the whole book in about a month. If you're having a hard time even finding the words to connect to God, just start reading these Psalms. And stick with them until you start to find your words. And lean on them. Let me pray for us.